You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. Let's start today's show with a little music. show we explore the fates. Later in the show I'll be talking to concert saxophonist Jose Antonio Zayas Caban about the fate that befell his native island Puerto Rico in 2017 in the form of hurricanes Irma and Maria. Together with his ensemble Tres, he is using the group's musical talents and pedagogy to reach out to affected communities around the island through a series of musical residences. But first, we visit the fickle mistress of fortune, who reminds us that for every up, there must be a down. Orff's O Fortuna is without doubt one of the best-known pieces of music composed in the 20th century. It's been co-opted to advertise cars, aftershave, beer and pizza. It's been sampled by death metal bands and rappers, as well as featured in movies, video games and sporting events, none of which could have been possibly within the wildest imagination of the itinerant medieval monks, whose collection of satirical poetry and dramatic text forms the basis for Orff's classic cantata, Camina Burana. weekend, Missouri Contemporary Ballet and the Choral Arts Alliance of Missouri team up to perform Carmina Burana at the Missouri Theatre. And I am delighted to welcome to the show the Executive Director of the Missouri Contemporary Ballet, Karen Grandy, and Emily Ottenson, Vice President for the Choral Arts Alliance. Hello, Karen and Emily. Hello. Good morning. I always think when you first hear that piece of music, the good first question should be, what does it remind you of? As soon as you hear that, where does it take you to? We were just saying it takes some of us back to the movie The Omen. It reminds me 
epitome of an aftershave that was advertised in the UK in the maybe it was here too in the 1970s. And it was called uh, called Old Spice, so they'd have these kind of crashing seas, and there would be <laughs> Oh Fortuna playing in the background. What does it remind you of, Emily? Just a lot of work. <laughs> well, yes, a, a lot of practicing, a lot of rehearsal, a lot of uh, very high notes to sing. But I, I think just from from doing it a couple of times with the chorale, it really makes me think of the fates and you know destiny and and all of the um, the danger and opportunity that Carl Orff meant to infuse into it. Um, and it's it's really exciting to hear that and hear that recording and think, oh yeah, I know I know what part I'm supposed to be singing on that <laughs> if I'm at rehearsal. Um, but that's that's kind of what it makes me think of just an epic, wonderful theatrical piece. Right. So presenting Carlos' 24 song cantata as a combined dance and choral performance is exactly how Karl Orff wanted it. Karen, tell us a little bit about his vision for the work. So it was it's complete theater. So that it means it includes obviously a full choir, um, full uh, live music, which is ma- basically just percussion plus piano and dance. And so it's been great to for Emily and I to have made that all happen. We have, uh, I think, over 150 or 130 singers that yes. are placed throughout the entire theater. So it is definitely a really interesting and exciting <laughs> production. They're placed throughout the entire theater, so not just on the stage. Yes, they're in the stage, they're in the pit, and they're up in the balcony. <gasps> wow. Yes. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> now, you did this in 2015. Correct. Um, yes. Teamed up together. Is it? Is that how you did it last time around, too? The, the singers all over yes. the theater? Yes. So if you're up in the balcony, you, you're pretty much at the front row of the choir as well. <laughs> you are. And it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a really amazing view from the balcony because now you're having the choir next to you, in front of you, and on the stage, and then... Uh, choreographically a lot of the patterns that we did were for that balcony seat so it's a good seat okay great i think that's i think that's where i'll be sitting (laughs) so uh, orf wanted carmina barana to to sweep people out of their seats for it to be a work that compelled all the senses soaring voices hushed stories crashing music huge orchestration in terms of the percussion multiple languages and for it to be accompanied by physical movement and very theatrical components so tell me both when you first saw it and where you fell in love with its theatricality um, I don't know that I saw the entire production of I've never I've never seen it myself and I kind of when we decided to do this with Emily I'm I don't like to go and watch other productions because I want it to be mine. So, I mean, for me it was just more about the music and the translation and how to kind of bring that forth for the audience to sort of understand, which they won't, unless they do read their translation, because I sort of <laughs> through the performance. <laughs> yeah. um, and and also, by the way, the Emily that she's referencing is Emily Edgington Andrews. I have to correct that, okay. because we have the same Emily's. name. Yes, yes, but she's the one who does all the work, and is, she's just phenomenal, and has really driven this choir to be what it is today. So I want to give her credit. Um, for me, actually, it was singing with this choir in 2015 that I first saw it, and it wasn't until we had realized the whole thing Thing and have the the ballet on stage and the you know the pit together and the choir and the youth choir up in the balcony so you can imagine you know being one singer in a giant choir and just experiencing it as it's happening as part of it but also hearing it around you it was really phenomenal going back to what you just said Karen when you're working on a production like Camino Barana which has been produced 
hundreds of times over you know multiple decades how do you make it your own when so many other people have gone before I mean I just feel like that's how I had to do it it was make sure because I have my rehearsal director he had done it in a ballet company he had been in and he would talk to me about his you know ideas that they had and I was like don't talk to me about that it really needs to be mine and so a lot of I think a lot of um, other companies as far as dance goes make that more more of a regal and sort of kind of production and a little bit more and uh, what I really wanted to do with this is make it more of a deconstructed sort of more raw feeling and also that's also a lot because of the what the translations say because it isn't really about the richness and and all of that it's really about a struggle throughout you know the whole ballet or the whole production (laughs) do you recommend for the singers to read the translated english version before they learn the latin and high german version certainly you know in conjunction with it while we're doing it we actually in our rehearsals we will um, discuss what the song means and what it's about Um, and that really helps you to infuse it with the energy and the tone and and even the facial expressions that it requires to really bring it to life from a choral perspective and then what I think is so phenomenal is adding the ballet on top of it and seeing it acted out along with that musicality it just it's unlike anything else um, that you can experience it's really neat. I would definitely recommend that people read the translation. I mean, I, I read the translation in preparing for talking to you, and it's it's hilarious in places. Yes, there's, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's one scene about the swan who's being roasted, who recalls how wonderful he was when he was white, and now he's charred to a crisp. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. It is, and it, and choreographically, um, it's all about that swan being on a spit. <laughs> She's yeah. just turning and turning and turning. <laughs> it is so cool to see. And there and there's definitely pieces where you've got the men in the tavern and there's a lot of interplay between men and women. Like the men are flirting, the women are saying, Oh no, you know, we're not gonna mess with you, leave us alone. You know, it, it's it's really fun and flirtatious and reading that translation really gives you that insight into what's going on on the stage. Talk me through as a choreographer, Karen, how you take something of this scope and adapt it for your own company, which is, you know, not huge. I mean, you've got an hour long, Uh right? Nine dancers, (laughs) multiple costume changes, I presume, or some costume changes, but a lot of different moods that you have to show on the stage. How do you adapt it? So um, I did did have a co-choreographer, Joel Hathaway, um, who was a company member um, back in 2015 as well. So I can't take all credit choreographically. We definitely really, really collaborated. But it it, it did all start with the translation. So what we did was we read through as we started choreographing. We really want to portray what each scene is really saying. And so we talked to the dancers also. We would go through the translation. This is what this means. This is why we're doing it this way. And, um, yes, for those dancers, although there are costume changes, really the costumes um, kind of, they start fully in a full hooded cape with red gloves. And that cape then becomes a long skirt that everybody has this long skirt. And they have kind of a nude sort of deconstructed um, corset underneath that. And so it just slowly kind of interchanges and slowly they are revealed and kind of the stripping off of all of the stuff I guess throughout so that's that was conceptually as far as the costumes went that's because that's kind of how this whole thing goes is just kind of stripping off all of the 
stuff. I guess all I can come up with is stuff. <laughs> um, and so it was for those for the dancers. I mean, when we ran it fully through the first time, because there's no you can't really have an intermission in the middle of this because it takes away from the whole feeling and so for the dancers we ran it for the first time last week and they were just like oh my gosh that was a whole emotional roller coaster because they literally have to switch their characters from one place to the next maybe into within scene to scene right so coming to barana literally translates as the songs of boyron which is the municipality in bavaria where the collection of 11th and 12th century poetic works were discovered in 1803 in its entirety the songs of boyron amounts to uh, 254 works but only 24 of which are organized into a libretto most of the original works are satirical bawdy and irreverent written by itinerant monks and Orff's selections from the corpus celebrate fate the Wheel of Fortune, spring, love, food and drink, debauchery, all shot through with a dose of carpe diem and the inexorable turning of the Wheel of Fortune. And I can't stop thinking about that now, how, you know, as you're going up, if you're on the ascendance, the only way is down, that the Wheel of Fortune is going to keep on turning. So fate, spring, the tavern, love, which are your favorite dance moments? Well, I mean... We have a really good time with the tavern. We do have an entire section where, yes, everybody is in the tavern. We have bottle dance, a whole bottle dance. They're throwing the things around. Um, the dancers love that. They think I think they feel like they might be able to relax a little bit in this part, except for then they have to toss bottles and not drop them. Um, and so that is one of my favorite place um, parts. Also, getting into the love, there are quite a few duets and and things like that that I really enjoy and um, just musically um, especially because there's a lot of the the soloists perform throughout the last that the whole love part of it and so just to the singers uh, those the baritone and and the soprano and all of those it's just like oh to hear their voices along with the choreography it's just really amazing and to sing do you have a favorite part to sing Emily Oh, I I don't even know if I could say there's there's so much variety to it that uh, you almost can't compare. I I think, you know, the classic and the maybe the easy answer is just the opening and the closing, which we heard at the beginning of this segment, the O Fortuna, uh, because it's so epic and powerful and it just kind of punches you in the gut when it happens. Um, And it is really fun to sing because you start, you know, loud and high and then you go go low and you build to this climax that you know everyone knows it's coming and you're just sort of excited waiting for it to happen so I I think that's really cool and fun to do (laughs) is it difficult to sing it okay it is difficult to sing um, especially the whole concert I think similar to the ballet but in different ways and we actually both of the times we've done this this year and in 2015 we have done a choir and orchestra only concert up in Mexico Missouri as a little premiere and a chance for us to sort of test it out and see what it's going to be like and um, much like many of these big um, impressive choral works it is um, exhausting to do um, and there's so much adrenaline, there's so much excitement, you know, and, and seeing Emily um, up conducting us and she gets so into it, she's so passionate, it really can't help but infect you as you're singing. Um, so it, it can really wear you out, but it's the most fun you can possibly have. And I can only imagine it's a, 10 times more fun to watch and to be part of it and to see the spectacle because it really, it appeals to anybody of any age and any background because it has something to offer, you know, anyone. 
And how do you, as singers, manage to keep your eyes on the music and not on the dancers? Well, that is um, an interesting challenge for us. <laughs> um, I want to be careful about this because I know Emily's probably listening. As I say, um, we are not allowed to watch the dancers while we're performing. Um, it is it is choral etiquette. You watch your conductor and you, you pay attention for the cues and you focus on your music. Um, we are allowed to have one rehearsal week where we can watch and see this amazing dancing and the amazing choreography. And it really helps us to see what it is we're conveying with the words. Um, and then you just have to have a laser focus when you're performing and and it helps because of the intensity of the music you know that does help make it fun and and help keep you focused on emily as she's conducting us i think it's a it must be like when you're watching a movie and trying not to read the subtitles even when the movie is in english and the subtitling is in english i still feel compelled to read the subtitles even though i know i don't need to it's just so distracting yes yeah that, that must be the most difficult part is just not watching the dance it's a challenge and i won't say that if a dancer's close to emily it might take a little glance but but we, we were pretty disciplined overall, and yeah, it is a challenge, but it's absolutely worth it. I guess when there are solo solo singers, then you have, as the rest of the choir, you have a chance to cast an eye to the side and watch them. <laughs> a little bit, and we do have some wonderful, wonderful soloists coming in to sing with us on this, so that'll give us a chance to maybe maybe take a little peek. <laughs> when you say you're bringing them in, are these people that are in the choir or they're not in the choir and you're bringing in special guest soloists? We are bringing in special guest soloists. Um, we have one who is a former uh, member of our choir, um, and he is now a professional opera singer out in uh, Washington in Seattle. He's going to be flying in for this. We have um, an accompanist of ours who has, has worked with us for many years. He's flying in from Los Angeles to do this. So we're really sort of bringing the old band back together and bringing him some new and exciting special guest soloists to sing these magnificent and beautiful and and really you know classic solos that are a part of this performance is the swan tenor a guest soloist or is that somebody in the choir who's doing the swan song it'll be a guest soloist yes <laughs> so so you'll have to come and watch and and see this wonderful performance <laughs> Um, so, Karen, I know what a draft painting looks like, and I can envisage, you know, a script or a piece of music being worked on. But when you start working on a, a dance as a choreographer, what is on the piece of paper? Little footsteps? Like, how do you, what does it look like? I know. Everyone wants to know. <laughs> <laughs> And it really is a different process every time. Um, there, there are no footprints on any papers. Um, <laughs> sometimes there are little lines to count the music um, for me. But um, ev I mean, every choreographer is different. For me, every every new work is a little bit different. The way I um, kind of. The, the process of it um, so I mean again for this Joel and I just kind of went in the studio and we talked about it and then we uh, I would start moving and then he would start moving and then we'd so say okay yeah this looks good together or blah 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 just sort of move and but how do you notate it is there a verb each turn left and swirl I'm sure it isn't well I'll, I mean <laughs> what you write down I, I mean you know we as ballet dancers we, so French is our universal language um, as far as steps and things like that um, but we are a contemporary company so this is not obviously classic classical dance in any way for us um, so yeah I mean sure we could say we're gonna do a passe there but we're gonna turn it in and you know all of that but really it's just about kind of showing and the dancers then learning from that so the dancers don't have a piece uh, it written down they can go away and no. revise it mm -hmm. it has to all be in the head like, like learning music by listening to it yes same way yes. you have to learn it by doing it yes <laughs> 
so and if, remember it. If somebody, <laughs> so like you're coming along now, four years later from the original one, you don't have anything written down. As no, to, but we have video. Ah, uh, <laughs> video. <laughs> How did people do it before video? I really don't know because it is something that is needed. And I mean, again, you know, then it was classical, mostly a lot of, you know, classical ballet. So then you have that is the verbiage. That is what it is. This is what's going to be next. And, you know, you can sort of write it down in that aspect. I guess at some point before staves came along, people had to work out how to write down music. And then somebody said, I have it. So maybe there's a gap in the market. Maybe you could make your fortune by coming up with a stave. I'm probably not. (laughs) I'm probably not going to work on that. Thank you. Okay. Well, just in case anyone out there wants to work on it. There we go. (laughs) So when I think about the ballet and a choir orchestra, one of the things that I think must be the most difficult is having everybody synchronized and moving as one. When you're just a solo artist, you know, it's just you to worry about. Duet gets a bit more tricky, but suddenly you've got a hundred and some choir uh, singers, you've got nine dancers, and not only did they have to work together individually, but the orchestra, the choir, and the ballet have to work together. So how do you do that? How do you make these many bodies move as one? So that's kind of where I, like when we get into the theater, that's kind of where, because I am the person that can see the whole picture. I mean, Emily has to, Emily Edgington Andrews has to really focus on the choir and, and the musicians. So that's where I'm kind of the eyes for all the rest of it to just kind of put all the puzzle pieces together because then we have our lighting, um, which, you know, happens as well. And so that, I mean, getting into the theater is my very favorite part, just getting into the lighting and seeing the whole, the final piece of the puzzle come together. Um, So yeah, when we get in there, then I just, I communicate with Emily, this, you know, these tempos are a little too fast or too slow. And, you know, the these singers were off a little bit. I know I'm not a singer, but I still, you know, you can still understand because these dancers are rehearsing to the same music every day. And although they know that there's going to be a little slight difference in music and musicality a little bit, so they have to be really hyper aware of what's happening as well, which is which lends the whole live aspect to that excitement for the dancers, the choir, and the audience. And for us, and there's even our early process as well, as, as I'm sure you have too, we, we're actually more than just the chorale for this. We are Cantabella, which is our um, kind of premier higher voices youth choir, and we are um, joined by MU's concert chorale for this concert uh, for the first time, which is very exciting. So we've had a number of rehearsals with, you know, first chorale, and then we add the youth choir, and then we had one the other week with the concert chorale as well and you can just imagine hundreds of singers all together but everyone's worked on this music and we all understand the intent and the purpose of it so you know with Emily at the helm it's it's just about practicing synchronizing and and she's so good at inspiring us to see what we're really doing as a group which is kind of the best part of singing in a choir is not just being an individual voice you know and working on your own parts but also becoming a unit and presenting something as one giant voice uh, for the community which is very cool for us so who has to keep up with 
who you said you might say to Emily the tempos are off a little bit so you're asking her to change the tempo to suit the dancers does she sometimes say well you just need to go a bit quicker Karen like, you, like <laughs> she won't usually say that um, <laughs> I mean Emily and I are real I mean we are work really really well together and she's come into rehearsals and we've talked about the things that you know are really important as far as the dancers go Sir, sure maybe this can go a little quicker or maybe this can go a little slower but we really have to stay with this this way because my dancers cannot levitate <laughs> we they, they might look like they can but they really can't <laughs> that's the most important thing so we, we can move faster and slower but the yes. dancers we gotta, right. we gotta work actually... with them <laughs> so for something of this magnitude how far out do you start rehearsing um, I mean, for us, it was at least uh, two months to originally to bring it together. But we kind of, in a way, started started from scratch because we only have I have three dancers that performed it two, uh, four years ago, um, and then so the rest of them didn't. So I really wanted everybody to still feel that beginning stages of it. Um, so I mean, we we started rehearsing for this in February, and so basically another two months to really get it tight last time I had I had to replace a dancer about three weeks in so <laughs> that was a little crazy because <laughs> it still wasn't finished being choreographed and it wasn't really as clean and tight as I wanted it so I'm really excited because I feel like the dance part portion is going to be so much even stronger than what we did four years ago I mean two months out honestly does not sound like very long that's are you working like 12 hours a day to get this all together <laughs> Yeah, and I will say probably when we did it initially, it might we might have had a full f- like three months to really choreograph it. So, but we did it a few years ago, so you know, yeah. two months is fine this time around. <laughs> yes. You know, we're old pros. <laughs> yeah, that's all we needed. And for the choir, are you uh, how long out are you are you starting to sing this? About it was about the same. Yes, yeah, so I'm starting around February, little pieces bit by bit, and slowly building to put the whole experience together into into the entire performance. And how many times will you have rehearsed all together? before the show mm, we'll have Thursday evening and Friday mm-hmm. afternoon and yeah. that'll be it yep and we'll be ready to go <laughs> and curtain time your seat <laughs> with excitement that's gonna be so yes. much fun so excited for this <laughs> anything else you want to add before we close I'm going to give a roundup of how people can get tickets um, I would just say you know this is such a premier experience and to be able to present this in Colombia with such an amazing ballet company that is, that is so phenomenal and so um, brings so much to this performance is something that folks really shouldn't miss um, it's it's beautiful it's orchestral it's choral it's dancing and it's such a spectacle it's like you know theater right there you it's know? a feast for all the senses it's, exactly yes, it really yes. So don't miss it is what <laughs> no. i'll say yeah. the missouri contemporary ballet and the choral arts alliance of missouri's production of carmina barana is on friday the 5th and saturday the 6th of april at the missouri theater tickets are available from the university concert series at concertseries.missouri.edu or you can call the box office at five seven Thank you so much, Karen Grandy, Executive Director of the Missouri Contemporary Ballet, and Emily Ottenson, Vice President for the Choral Arts Alliance of Missouri. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Jose Antonio Zayas Caban to talk about his Ensemble Tres and the work they are doing to support the people of Puerto Rico. 
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. 2017 was a disastrous year for the island and people of Puerto Rico. Hurricane Irma skirted Puerto Rico on September the 7th, leaving one million people without power. And before anyone had chance to draw breath, Hurricane Maria made landfall on the island just 13 days later. The strongest storm to hit Puerto Rico in 85 years. My next guest was born on Puerto Rico and moved to Colombia during his high school years. Today, he holds a Doctorate of Musical Arts from the University of Iowa and as a concert saxophonist and pedagogue, Jose Antonio Zayas Caban has presented performances and taught masterclasses throughout Europe, the Caribbean and North America, including at Trinity College in Dublin, the Guildhall School of Music in London and the Conservatorio Real de Musica de Madrid in Spain. Jose, it is a delight to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. So take us back to 2017 and what happened to your own friends and family on Puerto Rico? Well, thankfully, uh, they're all okay. My experience was that, you know, we heard the storms were coming. In fact, it was uh, coincidental. We had a family member who passed away just before. And uh, we were trying to plan to go down there to, uh, you know, say our goodbyes and and do the, the, the funeral. And so just got a call from the family saying, you know, there are storms coming and uh, we might have to postpone. So that just kind of put me on alert that something was going to happen. And then later on, you know, just following the news, I I remember specifically the first footage that came out. I think it was on CNN that I was following at the time. Just water everywhere. You know, everything, uh, the water was just up to the second floor of houses or whatever. And then, you know, just following up with family and trying to make sure everybody was okay and figure out, you know, what had happened to people. Are your family in San Juan? My family is in different parts of the island. So I have family uh, in the northwest coast in Aguadilla. That's where my mom's family is from. I have family in... uh, Ponce, and some of that family came from Juana Diaz, and then in the metropolitan area, some of the metropolitan area, there's still uh, some of them there as well. Which areas were worst hit? Which parts of the coast, or was it the devastation just across the island total? I'd say the east coast primarily, and uh, and that also happened to coincide with some communities that really didn't have a lot of resources before the storm went through. So, uh, you know, for example, when when it, I did start working on the residency project, there were some municipalities that still didn't have working phones, like the mayoral office. You know, I, I just couldn't call in and get in touch with them, even though, even though we want to connect with them. So I, I'd say uh, the eastern part of the island got hit the hardest by the storm itself. How soon after the storm were you able to visit? I haven't been. You haven't been back since? No. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, some members of my family have been and... My first trip back will actually be next month in May. So I think I think for so many of us, we feel kind of useless when we hear about such terrible calamities. We're not doctors or engineers. Our life skills seem so paltry in the face of such devastation. But as a musician, you worked out how you could use your musical teaching to assist people. So tell us about the residency program that you'll be bringing to Puerto Rico in November. Sure. It really actually started with the conversations uh, with my family after the hurricane. The person that we lost is a great aunt of mine, and she happened to be someone that I just spent a lot of time with as a kid, and she had a big impact on a lot of my food memories, and I just didn't know what to put my energy into, and uh, at the time, you know, we are still a young chamber group. I was just working on the website and doing photography for it, so I called the photographer we were working with, Peter Yankowski, 
And I said, I really need to do something. I need an outlet. He had been photographing my food. And uh, so we decided to do a little bit of photography so that then I could talk to the trio and incorporate the music of Puerto Rico to the end of our programs, 2017-2018. And, you know, after you see things happen on the news and uh, you listen to the discussion and how impersonal it started to get, I realized that what we could do as a small group was something very intimate. So I just started looking for ways to do something that was the scope of what the trio could handle. And and the idea was, first of all, to start engaging uh, composers of Puerto Rican descent to write music for the project. And then the next part of the idea was to try to find communities that were willing to host us and for us to fundraise so that we can give them concerts for free. And then now that has evolved because... Uh, you know, in working with Peter, I became very inspired. You know, my, my grandfather, for example, was a photographer in Puerto Rico, and, and he took photos for uh, the Raimi base, the military base that was in Aguadilla. And I've always had photography in my brain, you know, looking at some of the old photos I used to take. And so we uh, just recently reached out to Erika Rodriguez, who is a young, award-winning photographer who lives in Puerto Rico. And basically, what we're going to do the day, say, of a performance is we're going to go see the community organizers and we're going to try to work out to be with a few families and in the community and we'll we'll bring Erika with us and we're going to document our time there. She's going to spend some time with us and so we're going to bring music into Puerto Rico. We're going to reach out into these communities but then the sort of the other part of the project is uh, when we're back in the mainland U.S. and we're doing concerts we're not just going to give concerts. You know, we're going to start our days in some of these locations. We're going to be at an art gallery. We're going to have large print photography that Erika will do for us. We're going to get to give a presentation and talk about our time there. And then that evening, we'll be able to give a concert and we'll feature uh, some of the composers that we're working with, like Miguel Senon. We just started talking to Angelica Negron, who's also a Brooklyn-based composer, and uh, Carlos Carrillo, who is at the University of Illinois. And so we're both trying to build a bridge where we're doing some outreach. Uh, we're going to these communities. We're shaking their hands. We're meeting them. We're letting them know that we're thinking about them. But then we're coming back to the U.S. and we're going to try to build consciousness on a very small and intimate scale. And hopefully, if the residency project works really well and we get to go back every year, we'll continue to build this very intimate, quiet picture of individuals all across the island with the right support and right resources. You know, that's my vision is, is for us to continue to build that picture. And, you know, honestly, it's because I think that when you go to the news, it's a subject and it misses the individual experience. And, you know, uh, we're not an organization that can raise $10 billion, but because we're small and we're pliable and there's not so many of us to travel, we can, uh, we can focus on more intimate stories. And, you know, we don't just have to give concerts anymore. And I think that gives everything that we do a little bit more meaning anyway. And, you know, so that, that's how the residency, the, the residency is sort of shaping up. So, so you will give classes in these communities and then and then play a concert or you're or you're only doing a concert or is there a bit of both we are working with some of our corporate sponsors to perhaps bring some materials to the uh, 
the local music programs. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if we'll give classes at the time, but we're definitely going to spend time. The time that we're going to spend is probably just sitting down and talking to people. You know, and I think that's going to be important for our audiences in the United States, but even for the trio members themselves, you know, Colin and Casey. I, I know Casey hasn't been to Puerto Rico. I don't think Colin has been. I hope that's part of their experience, too, for them to meet the community and then feel something different when they get up on stage and perform. And that's kind of the experience that I want people to have, perhaps more indirectly when we're performing in the U.S. It's that if you've come to see one of our galleries or if you're interacted with our documentation of our time there, it'll give you a little bit of perspective before you come into a concert and listen to this music. And of course, it goes even a step further. You know, Miguel's composition is going to be called El País Invisible. And Angelica's work, once we kind of get into figuring out what we're going to do with her, will focus on uh, reacting to Erika's photography. So everything's going to be contextual in the end. And I think that's super important. I think that in the modern world, as you were saying, everything's just a subject, that if we can feel like we touch the lives of somebody else and that we have an, a more intimate connection to an issue, then it makes all the difference. So if if you give money to an aid organization, it's just the Red Cross or whoever it is. You don't see the person at the other end and you don't sometimes know whether there is a person at the other end. And to be able to see the life of somebody and to know that you are directly helping that one person is a really powerful message. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. I think that consciousness has a lot to do with context and experience. You know, and when you talk about dealing with inequities in a sustainable way, I think consciousness and awareness is really important. And that's why we're doing it in that way is because, you know, like what we're doing here in Colombia, it'll be food that's reminiscent of Puerto Rico, and it's going to be music uh, that represents Puerto Rico. And so it's this idea that if you want people to have a, a natural reaction and respond and try to help and feel like they're doing something meaningful, I think it's also important to get them to care and understand who is it that they're helping. And that's something that we can do a little more readily because uh, we can play music. And in my case, in this one specific instance, I'm also making the food. But that idea of putting people in that scenario has been uh, really important to me because that is part of the experience. You know, Puerto Ricans are citizens of the United States, but the culture is completely different. And we want to give people a little bit of that so it's not just something happened and they need help. It's uh, let's get to know each other so that this relationship can be sustainable over the long term. You know, let's become more aware of one another in the same way that a parent would react if a child had an accident. You know, that's not just, of course, you had an accident and you have to take care of it, but you also care about them and you worry about them no matter what. And I think that's what what's missing, you know, the statistic that 50% of mainland residents don't know that Puerto Ricans are citizens. That's, you know, that's what I'm thinking about. Right. And, and thankfully, you know, I've been lucky enough to find great uh, team members and great composers and here locally, great restaurant owners and chefs that are willing to share that vision in their way and at least take the chance uh, on us and uh, let us bring, like, a smidge of Puerto Rico to Colombia. So as well as being a world-class musician, you are also an amazing chef 
even though you don't have a restaurant. I mean, I've eaten at your house and your food is fantastic. So the event in Columbia, you are doing double duty. You are playing a concert, but you are also preparing some of the food along with Jill Rostein from the Good Food Company. So talk a little bit about the event that's coming up in Columbia. We're going to be having it at Doing Craft on April 15th. And that's basically a reflection of all of these ideas coming together. I'm a big fan of the Columbia Farmer's Market. And uh, I believe in finding connections between things, you know, whether they're uh, very literal and direct or, or indirect. And I think that the idea of sustainability is, uh, to me, is very relatable when you say, I'm going to go to the farmer's market, you know, and you buy something. You're not just purchasing a product that's very well cared for. You're basically encouraging people to take care of Missouri soil. And so I wanted to make sure that we were doing something that encouraged that kind of sustainability where we were drawing from the market. So there will be several vendors that will be represented from the farmer's market and also Blind Star Farm. And, you know, you're going to walk in. Dan Deathrow from Flyover is going to be our guest bartender, and he's going to bring back the relief cocktail that they started selling right after the hurricane. And he's going to be kind of combining it with some of Drinkcraft's product. Um, Which is kombucha. Kombucha. Based, yes. Yeah, the ginger kombucha, because I think mm-hmm. that drink had some kind of a ginger beer. And, you know, you're going to sit down, and it's basically like coming over to the house. We're going to serve uh, no more than 30 people, so we just put it on the website. And you're going to get things that have to do with my heritage and things that have to do with my food memories and the dinner will be at six o'clock so we're basically going to have you know we're going to have a salad we're going to have chicharrones we're going to have uh, a smoked pork belly we're going to have rice with vegetables and then jill's making the salad and she's also going to be making flan with batata with sweet potatoes so it's sort of traditional food but it's going to mix in some of my memories from here in Colombia and my experiences with the farmers market you know some of these vendors are really beloved to me and they've been really important in all these projects because they're so supportive and then at seven o'clock we're gonna dial it up and start with some tangos by Piazzola we're gonna play his four seasons it's a very old work and then then we're just gonna play a second half of program of basically uh traditional Puerto Rican music by composers of old. So including a a trio arrangement of the Puerto Rican national anthem, which is something I really like performing because it's one of the few works um, that was written during the few years that Puerto Rico wasn't part of Spain or the United States. I don't think I've ever heard that. And so, well, you know, that was definitely a natural reaction at first when we put the national anthem into our programs. You know, when you read something like most people don't understand that Puerto Ricans are are citizens of the United States, I thought the most obvious thing to do was to play the national anthem because both people haven't heard it. It's this very sort of traditional Spanish-influenced danza. But also when we have played in places, and we will play in more locations where there's a Puerto Rican population, that really hits them, you know? Uh, When we perform that, we actually turn the lights off and we do it as a tribute to everyone who lost their lives after the hurricane. Mm. And it's sort of a in recognition of the fact that people don't still have power and water, you know, so we just play completely in dark and we just let people know that uh, we're still thinking about them. So, yeah, you know, we thought about this a lot and I've been at it for a couple of years. And it's this very layered, ambitious thing uh, that we're going after. But I think it's totally important to let people know that those of us who lead everyday lives, those of us are 
sort of on the normal, uh, we can still do something to make a difference and, and have an impact. And we can still reach out in a meaningful way. You know, every contribution and every effort really does matter. And I think that collectively, the more people that sort of join in on becoming more aware and conscious of Puerto Rico, the more of an impact it'll have down the line. Now, these events you're taking around the country, ultimately. You're Mm -hmm. starting out, you have uh, one or possibly two nights in Colombia, but then you have three, I think, events in Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be in Minneapolis just before we perform in Columbia. I've been part of this Thursday musical concert series, and we're going to do... They have, they have sort of three branches. They have community events, uh, they have in-home concerts, and they have sort of their performing arts center concerts. So we're, we're doing two of those, and then they're doing a special event because uh, it's an organization called the Musicant Group. Um, they're featuring Thursday Musical, and we were one of the selected groups to be in this high-rise downtown Minneapolis called the Capella Tower. And then once this is done, we're going to be focusing a lot on fundraising. And then 2019-2020, we're going to start touring the program. In the coastal states, we have our residency uh, in November. And we're going to start working more with these composers, incorporating their music. And uh, and if things go really well, we're going to be recording and premiering uh, Miguel Sanon's work, El País Invisible, The Invisible Nation, in April of 2020. And we'll get a few opportunities to perform with him later that year as well. Is Miguel Zanon possibly coming to Colombia next year? Yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to work that out. So that would definitely be a wonderful opportunity for him to be here and perform that work. So yeah, we're we're going to try to finish the the portion of the project, the portion of the recording project with a performance here in Colombia. So uh, that would be that would be great for us to be able to do that. So you your ensemble tres there are I can't pronounce it properly so you can say it properly. Well I say it in Spanish tres, tres. And that's, that's the idea. Tres. So. Um, so your ensemble tres there are obviously three of you. Uh-huh. You have piano and two saxophone. Yes. So um, Miguel Zenon is also a, a saxophone player. Mm-hmm. So the composers that you're working with are they specifically writing music for uh, piano and two sax or are you taking songs that they've written and adapting them for your trio? Well, um, that's a great question. We, we started doing transcriptions because there's no original music for that specific ensemble. So we've been borrowing trios from the piano trio repertoire. But we've definitely wanted to perform new music. And we thought this was a great opportunity to fold everything in. And so we're focusing on composers from underserved groups. You know, So we have several Puerto Rican composers. And I've personally worked with Shelley Washington and Gemma Peacock, and now Amanda Fieri just transcribed a work called Gone to Earth for us, which we've been working on recording, and she's going to write an original work. So we're definitely moving in the direction of playing original repertoire, and what we're doing with Miguel ultimately will turn into a work that we'll be able to play as a trio, but when we're with them, because of our uh, our normal arrangement, which is soprano, tenor saxophone, and piano, he's going to be playing alto sax. So we'll just add an additional voice, soprano, alto, and tenor. Right. We'd like to use Barry sax more, and we probably will. It's just a difficult instrument to travel with. Let's listen so. to a little clip of music from your website. This is just a, a short snip from Mendelssohn Hensel Trio Movement Number no. 1, performed by Trace with Jose on soprano sax, Joel Gordon on tenor sax, and Casey Raffin on piano. 
on your website, most of the music that you play is is classical based. So you have Mendelssohn and Bach. Um, but the concert that you're giving in Colombia then isn't reflective of that. It's really more Puerto Rican folk origin music. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's sort of the direction we're going in and how we're programming some of these events. So uh, definitely we we had it at the end of our programs when we were touring. So uh, generally you'll hear a little bit of, well, last year we would have heard a little bit of classical music uh, and uh, and then we would have ended with the tribute. So we're moving in that direction and then eventually there will just be a lot of new music for, for the group. Amanda Fiery, you mentioned earlier, and Gemma Peacock, they were both here on the show last year because they were in town for the Mizzou New Music Festival. So is this really part of uh, who you are as a group? Is this idea of collaboration? This seems to be kind of important to you in bringing other people into not only the work with Puerto Rico, but as an ensemble, being able to collaborate with other people. Is that part of your mission, this idea of collaboration? Yeah, absolutely. That's always the way I've seen it. And, you know, when and Colin and I originally started talking about uh, what we were going to do, even with the, the logo, the two brackets, you know, it's, it's meant to kind of be a message of inclusiveness. I feel like, you know, as a musician, it's always very rewarding to work with living composers. And Amanda was our first experience. She was with us in Iowa City while we were recording, and it's just a fabulous experience. But also working with individuals who really have the courage to try to send a message uh, through their music and their work. So, you know, in doing that, those types of collaboration, you get to talk about some of the things that are interesting and important to you and develop things that are meaningful for everybody. But yeah, you know, and and that's definitely part of my background and my heritage. You know, uh, Puerto Rican people are just easy to to connect with and they'll often invite you in and offer you a meal pretty much right away. And so I definitely bring that spirit and that background and and, uh, those values into how I work professionally uh, with this group. You know, I, I have great relationships with all of our collaborators, and we're very supportive of one another while at work and outside of work, and that really enhances the communication and the experience when we're trying to do something good. Plus, it allows us to really, like, get together and, and put our heads together and and work on projects that do have some messaging behind them. I think if you didn't have that connection and we didn't understand where each other is at on these subjects, uh, we wouldn't be able to come together and, and, and do something that might have more impact other than just entertaining people on stage. How did you start playing the saxophone? Well, in Puerto Rico, I took classes at the Escuela Libre de Musica uh, for a few years, and then that sort of stopped. We moved to uh, Missouri, and... You know, that's sort of a shocking experience being in the in the Middle West uh, after being in Puerto Rico. And really the reason why it all sort of began was it was just the school bus here at Columbia Public Schools. I had a really tough time uh, being in the school bus, and I think the kids identified me as, as a foreigner. And I was already feeling a little bit conflicted and out of place. And I, for some reason, it occurred to me that I had a saxophone and that if I started practicing saxophone, I would have to stay at school after school and force my dad to pick me up from school. And uh, in doing so, John Patterson, who was then the director of bands, I think he was just on his way to retiring. He, he got a couple of comments from some of the other uh, band members that there was a stranger using up the practice rooms and practicing you know, a couple hours in the afternoon. And so 
It, it was a very funny experience. He just sort of walked into my practice room. He introduced himself. He gave me a piece of paper and said, could you practice this? He gave me, I don't remember, a few days or a week, and I practiced. Uh, I practiced. I came back. I played for him. He invited me to join the band. And then he offered to uh, give me lessons. And within nine months, he said, I think you should uh, consider auditioning for collegiate programs. You know, and I was already kind of slated to perhaps do engineering like my family members. And uh, so that was a very scary thing to bring home. But uh, I went and auditioned. I got a couple of scholarship offers. And I thought, well, this is working out so far. So, so you know, it was kind of like that. And here I am now. The bullies on the school bus gave us a great world-class musician. Huh, yeah, Not that I want to encourage bullies on the school bus, but you, you rose above it. I think, interesting, Miguel Zenon also had a background. He was going to study engineering like you and then swerved into music, so you have that in common too. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, it, it has been nice, though, I have to say, because in school you don't, uh, you don't meet a whole lot of classical Puerto Rican musicians, but in kind of contacting him and working with him and some of the other collaborators, there's just something very familiar about talking to other Puerto Ricans who were raised on the island, you know, even just having conversations on the phone. So it's been a very heartwarming experience. And, and the guy is obviously a fabulous, like, you know, superstar saxophonist. But um, when we have phone conversations and exchange emails, he's just as generous as 99% of the Puerto Ricans that I I've met and knew when I was growing up there. And Miguel Zenon, we should say, is a MacArthur Genius Award recipient and a Guggenheim Award recipient and has been nominated for Grammys. I mean, he's an amazing Puerto Rican saxophone player. Yeah, he's had a great career. And, and the reason I was drawn to him just as a, as a musician was uh, that he... Uh, he incorporates his Puerto Rican heritage into his music. You can hear Jose Caban and the Ensemble Tres on Monday, the 15th of April at Drink Craft Cafe on North 10th Street. If you would like to sample the flavors of Puerto Rico, courtesy of chefs Jose Caban and Jill Rustine of The Good Food Company and guest bartender Dan Dethrow from Flyover Restaurant, then tickets for dinner, cocktail and the show are $45 and the evening starts at 6. Advanced reservations are a must as there are only 30 spots available. Alternatively, you can come along at 7 p.m. for the concert and tickets will be $15. All proceeds from the evening will go to support the Trace Residency Program in Puerto Rico this November. And you can book tickets by calling Drinkcraft Cafe on 573-777-5555. Jose Caban, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take a whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Tonight at the Blue Note, Ina Cook, along with a 13-piece band, performs an Aretha Franklin R-E-S-P-E-C-T tribute to benefit the Ellis Fischel Cancer Center. The show starts at nine and tickets are $10 on the door. This is the opening weekend for Capital City Productions' version of the 1970 rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar. The Dinner Theatre doors open at 6pm tonight and tomorrow and tickets for dinner and the show are $38. You can also catch a matinee on at 1pm on Saturday with lunch served at 12 and that's in Jefferson City. Also in Jefferson City this weekend is the last chance to see Scene 1 Theatre's production of Silent Sky, a play by Lauren Gunderson which centres around the true stories of female astronomers at the Harvard College Observatory at the beginning of the 20th century.
documentary. The play starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow and tickets are 15. Saturday night at the Blue Note, you can party like it's 1999 with Dr. Gervais in town to perform the music of Prince and the Revolution. Show starts at 8.30 and tickets are $10. Monday evening, the Aina Flute Ensemble of South Korea will perform a concert of traditional Korean music at the Reynolds Alumni Center Ballroom. The concert is free and open to the public and is sponsored by the MU Asian Affairs Center and the School of Music. Next Wednesday is the opening night for the Mizzou New Play Series. This is a five-day event of dramatic readings of new plays written by Mizzou students as well as new work by Professor David Crespi. The performances will be all be at Studio 4 on Hit Street and tickets are $5. Each evening's performance features different works, so if you want to catch all the new works, it's a multi-night commitment. Also on Wednesday evening, the Unbound Book Club will be discussing American Prison by Shane Bauer, a blistering indictment of the private prison system and the powerful forces that drive it. That discussion will be at Skylark Bookshop from 6 till 7.30 and it is free and open to all. And at the Blue Note next Wednesday, the Brew and View series continues with a 20th anniversary celebration of the classic comedy Office Space. Movie starts at 8 and tickets are $5. Next Thursday on April the 4th, the Missouri Arts Council is presenting a one-day conference called Arts and Aging in Missouri. A lively, creative, heartfelt and moving day celebrating the power of aging and the arts. The event is from 10 till 3 at the University of Missouri, but take note that the deadline for registering is Monday, the 1st of April. And the Columbia Theatre World picks up again next Thursday with the opening night for Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the British farce, Noises Off. The show runs for three weekends with evening performances at 7.30 and Sunday matinees at 2. Tickets are $14 unless you go on a Thursday, in which case they are only 10. Also opening next Thursday is the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre Comedy, Anton in Show Business. This is a one weekend only run. Catch the evening performances at 7.30 and there's a final Sunday matinee at 2 and tickets for that show are $8. And finally, at the Blue Note next Thursday, there is a new fundraiser called Voices of Columbia, which will raise money for the Heart of Missouri CASA organization. Eight bands and singers will be performing to raise money and to win the title of Voice of Columbia. Emceed by the 2013 Miss Missouri, Shelby Ringdahl. The lineup includes the Bernie Sisters, John Galbraith, the January Lanterns, the Boone Howlers, Natasha Myrick, the Naturels, Emily Locke and the Onions. The show kicks off at 7 and tickets are $40. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Thank you.